good to be here with you this morning. Brother Vanderwerf, good to see you. Praise the Lord that you and your wife are able to be here this morning with us. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to turn there and uh, look at that in just a moment. <clears throat> I have been working hard on a project that you actually have given to me, and that is the arranging of prophetic texts in chronological order. Uh, just a bit of trivia I learned in the course of doing that. Did you know that there are 31,102 verses in the Bible? A little bit of trivia there for you this morning. 31,102 verses. So far, I have identified, cataloged, and arranged a little over 2,100 verses which have to do with the rapture, the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and those things to come. So it, it is quite a project to find all those verses and then arrange them in a chronological way. But I've got a, a tentative document going, and I appreciate your prayers as I work on that, that it, it might be a blessing to many. Uh, it's really been a profitable experience for me, and I praise the Lord for the opportunity to do that. I'd like you to take your Bibles today and look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. But before we do that, let's just ask for the Lord's direction. Father in heaven, we thank you today that we have before us in our hands the precious word of God. And we thank you that we can study it and read it and find insights throughout your book of things to come and things past to understand the significance of your plan over all the centuries and to understand uh, how you've developed things in the past and what you intend to do even in the future. And may that give us a sense of security in the midst of a world that is very insecure, that we might follow you faithfully and that we might be faithful in all that we do to serve you. So open our eyes through the leading illumination of the Holy Spirit today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I would like to begin today by giving you a little bit of an understanding of the transition, I guess you could say, or the movement from the New Testament church age to the kingdom age in terms of the covenant. Remember, the new covenant was instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ, and we find it here in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. It says this, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it, and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's kind of an interesting closing verse. That's not really the verse we wanted to look at. It's the verse before that in which Jesus says, this is the New Testament in my blood. Now, the word there, translated testament, might just as well be translated covenant as we have looked at the other covenants in the Bible in past times. And so here Jesus was instituting the new covenant of the church. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to another text, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. There we find another reference to this new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. It says there, beginning in verse 4, And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, 
Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Now notice verse 6, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Again, we are ministers of the New Testament or New Covenant. So this covenant, which is the covenant that Jesus instituted at the Last Supper and which went into effect at Pentecost, is the, a covenant offered to all men that by faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in his shed blood on Calvary, they can know him as their personal Savior. And this covenant is active and in effect, as we find later in Hebrews, because it speaks of Jesus as a testator who, was, who died and shed the blood, therefore, therefore putting the testament into effect. And we find here in verse 6 that we are considered able ministers of the New Testament, of this new covenant which has been instituted, which is the church covenant. So the church covenant is in effect right now. But the new covenant of Israel is something we still look forward to. Turn now back in your Old Testament to Jeremiah chapter 32. We're going to look at the new covenant now in relation to the kingdom and try to understand a little bit as you read that what distinguish, how to distinguish between the two. That's our purpose here. And to kind of see the interrelation between the two as they're used in different contexts. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 36. And now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel concerning this city, the city being spoken of as Jerusalem, whereof ye say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by famine and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. Now, what's in view here is the Babylonian Empire conquering uh, the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. And Jesus, God, is telling them ahead of time that they're going to be spread out, but he is going to bring them back in the future. Verse 38, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart, and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus saith the Lord, lack as I have brought them all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. And fields shall be bought in this land, whereof ye say, it is desolate without man or beast. It is given unto the hand of the Chaldeans. Men shall buy fields for money and subscribe evidences and seal them. And take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, and in the places of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, and in the cities of the mountains, and in the cities of the valley, and in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captivity to return, saith the Lord. 
Now, as you read about the covenant which God is going to make with Israel, you find along with it a lot of the various benefits and blessings that are in that covenant. That's why I read this extended portion. But let's look back, first of all, at verse 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Now, notice how this is phrased. It says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Who is them? This is a covenant that is made with a particular group of people. And when we look back in the context, back to verse 36, we find out that the them is the people that are carried away from Jerusalem and their children and their seed. So when you extend that, that's the Jewish people who occupy the capital of the nation, which is Jerusalem. And so he is speaking here, the them is Israel. It's the nation of Israel. And when you find the covenant, the new covenant in the Old Testament, the new covenant that's for the kingdom, you will almost always, I think I can say always, find that it's mentioned in terms of a covenant with them or covenant for them. We have this little phrase here that gives us a clue. Now, the covenant that Jesus offered is a whosoever may come covenant. Whosoever may come by faith and receive Christ as Savior, and they will be saved. But this promise that's being made here is different. It, it, it requires that first new covenant in order to take place, but it is a different covenant, and this covenant is made with Israel and is yet future. And in this covenant, God will change their hearts, and he will keep his promises which he made in the Abrahamic covenant. Before we talk any more about that, though, let's look a little bit further. Now I want to take you to the New Testament. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 is an amazing chapter. Uh, it is the chapter, you may recall, of the, of the branches being broken off and grafted on the trunk. And, and God is warning the church here that they should not be proud and boastful that Israel's uh, mission and program has been temporarily laid aside because, and, they, and the church has been grafted in. It's the primary focus of God's work today because the church could be removed and Israel can be put back. And in fact, that's going to happen. And so we want to look at verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel. That describes Israel in the time in which we live right now. Uh, anyone will testify to you that works with the Jewish people that it's very difficult to win the Jewish people to the Lord. They are into their traditions and into their way of thinking, various sects of them in different directions. But the reason for that is that there is a kind of blinding. There's a blinding that has been posed upon them as a judgment for their sin against the Lord. So that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now, the fullness of the Gentiles, the church, remember, we've discussed this before, help you keep it in front of your mind, the church started out primarily as Jews in the beginning. 
And as it grew rapidly, when it was open to Gentiles, or when it was declared to be open to Gentiles, as they spread and went into Samaria and other places, it finally became primarily a Gentile group. And today, by far, the majority of, uh, of church people are Gentiles, which essentially means they're non-Jewish, okay? That includes basically everybody except Jews. And so the fullness of the Gentiles here is when God has completed his work of bringing Gentiles in particular into the church. And when that is done, the rapture will remove them from the earth. So when the rapture comes, the fullness of the Gentiles is here. Then notice it says, verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. The blindness is going to be removed. It's until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Then all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. This is a covenant unto them, a covenant unto the Israeli people, to the Jews. Uh, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but it's touching election. They are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. And so God has a plan, and he is going to keep his promises with Israel through this new covenant that will be made with them. So you remember... We had the covenant of Abraham, which was basically all positive promises to the people of Israel, a blessing that God was going to give them, a land, a nation, a name, and so forth. And then we had the law code, which also promised blessing, but it was conditional. If you obey, then I will bless you. And so there was a conflict, you remember, between the two that was resolved by Christ when he died on the cross because when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty of the law, which was death, for all men. So now the Jewish people, by turning to Christ, can fulfill the stipulation of the law, which demanded their death, and Christ had done that on their behalf. And they could be blessed according to the Abrahamic covenant. And the new covenant is, in fact, the, the blessing that God gives them to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant now that Christ has died in the first new covenant. So 11, Romans 11 here says, For this is my covenant, again, unto them, when I shall take away their sins. This is the new covenant with regard to Israel in the New Testament. Now, the new covenant is with Israel. The new covenant, kingdom covenant, we call it, it appears 13 times directly in the Old Testament and only three, maybe four times in the New Testament. So let's, let's look a little further. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 is frequently used as the primary statement of the New Testament or the new covenant uh, for the kingdom in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 27. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. In other words, they're going to grow rapidly, multiply. And it shall come to pass 
that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. Blessing. The discipline and judgment that's come upon them for their sin is going to end because Christ has paid the penalty and now he's going to be able to bless them and he will watch over them. Verse 29. In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, people were complaining that uh, they were being punished for unfairly for what their fathers had done. And of course, that's not true. And it's set forth later as we see God ultimately making all ways straight because not everything is dealt with in this life. And some of those people who deserve judgment uh, got judgment in the afterlife that hasn't yet developed in the eyes of people who were still left here on earth. So verse 30, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth a sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. So this is a kingdom covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The new kingdom covenant. Well, so now let's go back into the New Testament. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm sorry, chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Beginning in verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Remember, he's the intercessor there for us. That's the emphasis of this time in which we live. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man has somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. And notice verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. That is the new covenant for the church. You notice it doesn't say covenant with them. It says he is the mediator of a new covenant, which was established upon better promises. And as we read throughout Hebrews in the scripture, the new covenant of the church 
was far superior to the covenant of the law because it not only provided, uh, it provided the power to live up to God's holiness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ in our lives. Jesus Christ paid the penalty that was required by the law, and so the new covenant of the church was much better. But let's go further, watch. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, this is quoting Jeremiah, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Is this sounding familiar? We hear an echo here. Does this sound like the verse we just read in Jeremiah chapter 31? It's a quote. It's, it's a point. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, and I will remember no more. In that, he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. What covenant is this? It's the kingdom covenant. You notice in verse 8, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so we have in verse 6 the new covenant of the church, which had to happen before the new covenant for the kingdom could happen because the demand of the law had to be satisfied for them before the new covenant of the kingdom could happen. And then we have in the next verses the new covenant of the kingdom. Well, let's turn the page a little bit further. Chapter 10. Look at chapter 10 with me. Well, let's look at chapter, I skipped one. Chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not with this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. Now, I can hardly read that verse without going over. That, that verse is talking about the purpose of sacrifices in the Old Testament and in the Millennial Kingdom. The cleansing of the flesh, the purifying of the flesh. It didn't purify the soul or the conscience, but it purified the flesh so a man could approach the Shekinah glory, the glory of God that would be present in the temple in the Old Testament and in the millennium. So it had a value in a sense. If the blood of bulls and of goats and ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, these animal sacrifices allowed you to approach God one, one particular day, and then the, you, the next time you went, you had to do another sacrifice, and the next time, and all it was doing was purifying your flesh, purifying you so you could approach a holy God in worship. 
But when Christ died, he, he didn't just purify the flesh. He purified the conscience and the soul. He took away the sin. So we could now stand before God and live with God eternally because Christ was the superior sacrifice. Verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Is this a church testament, church covenant, or the kingdom covenant? Answer in your own mind. I can never get you to answer out loud anyway, but answer in your own mind. It's the church covenant. He is the mediator of this New Testament by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, that's the law, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. By the way, that carries over to both the church and them because neither of us could receive our promised eternal inheritance except that Christ died in this New Testament church covenant. So that's a reference to the church covenant. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering times, oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies he made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore, the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission is, there is no more offering for sin. Is this the new covenant of the church or the new covenant of the kingdom? What's, what's, the, what's the giveaway words there? The covenant that I will make will future with them, Israel. This is the kingdom covenant. That's being talked about here. And we could go on to Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verses 6 to the others that are in your notes there. And uh, those are all references to the New Testament church covenant, except for maybe 12, 22, and 24, which may be both of them. So there is throughout the scriptures, 13 times in the Old Testament, three or four times in the New Testament, reference to this covenant. And the way we distinguish the two covenants is that the new covenant for the kingdom is with the people of Israel specifically, whereas the new covenant of the church is an invitation and an offer to all mankind. But the new covenant of the kingdom could not take place until the new covenant of the church was set forth because they couldn't reconcile a conflict between the Abrahamic covenant, which promised blessing, and the law code, which denied blessing because they couldn't live up to it. But Jesus Christ satisfied that in the new covenant of the church and hence made possible the new covenant of the kingdom, in which he said, I will change their hearts and I will bless them with the land and 
the blessings. It's amazing in my study uh, that there's two sections which surprise me. One is the interim period between the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. That, that section of the list of verses has expanded rapidly. I, I, knew that, I knew about things that took place in the interim, the 75 days between the tribulation and the millennial kingdom, but I had no idea there was so much that would fall there. And the other thing that surprised me is the overwhelming number of verses about the millennial kingdom. Which are, an end, which are a fulfillment, which are developing the idea of the results of the kingdom covenant, the new covenant for the kingdom, uh, and how it works out. It's really interesting. We'll, we'll look at that another day. So, if you look at your notes, turn the page. I deliberately put this summary on the back so you wouldn't have any clues about it. We got two blanks there. It's all you got today, two blanks you have to worry about. And, uh, the, and I'll even tell you what's in the two blanks. The, the one blank is the church, in other words, a new covenant that refers to the church, and the list that's there. And the other is the kingdom, in other words, a new covenant for the kingdom. And I put this here so you could make a note of it, and then when you go back and look at your notes in the future, you can remember how, how it was set out. So the first line, the verses there, are, are, is that for the church or for the kingdom? It's the church, of course, you know that, because it's the, number one is the covenant that Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. So the first one is the church, and the second is the kingdom. Second is the kingdom. Now, we want to move back to uh, kind of the way we were proceeding before in terms of the different uh, dispensations and covenants. And uh, we're going to look at the kingdom now, and some of the things that are unique and identify the kingdom. And as we do that, across the top of the screen are several verses which we have just looked up, many of which, which are the words of the new covenant for the kingdom as they appear in Scripture. And we want to remember now, as we talk about this, that one of the major descriptions of this period of time is found actually in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 20. I'd like you to turn there. Revelation chapter 20. And here is an outline of the, of the circumstances with regard to the millennial kingdom. Chapter 20, verse 1. <clears throat> and I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loose for a little season. So Satan is out of the picture in the millennial kingdom. And, he, and all his demon hordes are... He, when he's out, I mean, his whole group is out. So we have no presence of the devil or of those who uh, are his evil angels in the millennial kingdom. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the image, uh, had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. 
So this is the tribulation martyrs, individuals who have been killed for their witness of Jesus during the seven-year tribulation period, which just preceded this. This, in fact, is part of the interim period. But the rest of the dead lived not again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So all those who were resurrected at the rapture uh, and all those that were resurrected after the tribulation, which is the Old Testament saints, will serve with Christ reigning for a thousand years. Verse 7, And when the thousand years is expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog too. The two's not there, is it? I have, I, everybody gets confused. There are two gogs of Magogs. One is at the midpoint of the tribulation. The other is at the end of the millennium, totally different battles at different times. But in both cases, the enemy converges upon Jerusalem. Okay, that's, that's the thing that makes it confusing. Okay, so Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. This, this is tremendous. We started out a millennial kingdom that's made up of all saved people, and now we have multitudes who turn on God. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne. And then we come to the destruction of the heavens and the earth and new heavens and so forth. But this is the millennial kingdom. Notice, it wasn't until John wrote this in AD 95 that Bible students knew that this period of the kingdom was going to be a thousand years. It was to be a thousand years. It says it six times in this descriptive passage of the millennial kingdom. Well, let's go back here. So number one, it focuses on the nation of Israel, the new covenant for the kingdom. Israel's blessings promised in the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled and they will become the leaders of the world and all the Gentiles will look to them for leadership and direction. Man's responsibility was to be the people of God. It says in Jeremiah 31, 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Responsibility during that period of time is to be faithful as God's people. Well, what is man's failure? Well, by the end of the thousand years, many of those who've been born, a large number, have rebelled against God, and they failed to be the people of God. In Revelation chapter 20, we just read about Gog and Magog. At the end, Gog and Magog surround the camp of the beloved and are about to descend on them when Christ rains fire and brimstone, just totally annihilates and destroys them in one fell swoop. By the way, it's quite different than Armageddon. Okay, and then there's God's judgment, the second Gog and Magog. This is a dispensation of the kingdom. Now, we want to think about, what, so what, what does this mean to us? We, at each one, we've tried to think a little bit about what is the significance of this to us. Well, we, we've said this before, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But the first thing that's really big is that God keeps his 
promises. He promised it to Abraham, and then it looked like it was going to be impossible to fulfill after the law. How could God fulfill this? He couldn't find a mediator. He, uh, he, man wasn't qualified to receive forgiveness. And so he sent his own son. Remember, Isaiah is full of this. His only resort was to do it himself. So he sent his own son to die on the cross. And that made it possible for him to keep his promises. Now, we look back and we see that all worked out beautifully in history, don't we? But when they were back there looking at it, it looked like an impossible situation. It looked like there was no escaping God's judgment, that it was all over. But those who read their Bibles, those who read the Abrahamic covenant and understood it, knew that there had to be a future. There had to be a fulfillment. Somehow, God would bring it to pass. He keeps his promises. Secondly, man is not a sinner because of his circumstances, but rather because of his sinful heart. We want to blame our boss, our wife, our husband, our neighborhood, some event that took place in our life for misbehaving, for sinning. But the heart of our sin is our own hearts. It's not the circumstances. This, this, is, uh, this is demonstrated. I want you to turn. I want you to see this in your Bibles. It's in your notes, but I want you to turn where you can see it in your Bibles. Maybe you want to even underline it in your Bibles. I think this is a very important verse. Buried in the book of Isaiah, chapter, uh, chapter 26. Isaiah 26, turn there, verse 10. Listen closely. Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of the uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. This verse seems to be written for a time like the millennial kingdom. Look closely. Let favor be showed to the wicked. The millennial kingdom will be a period of time when there'll be all kinds of favor. No war, no, no illness, no sickness. That's what Christ was portraying. That's how he portrayed himself as the Messiah when he came the first time. He healed so many people, showing that, that he was the one who was the king who was going to become, was able to do that. So there's going to be perfect conditions. Let favor be showed to the wicked. Everything's going to be hunky-dory, as we use the expression. Yet... Will he not learn righteousness? Having everything go his way will not change him. It will not change him. In the land of the uprightness will he deal unjustly. So here, here he is. He, he doesn't change. And, and in, a, in the land of the upright, a land where everybody is faithfully serving the Lord and where Christ is king and where he rules with an iron rod and puts everybody, anybody out that is not cooperating or working with the system internally, like this guy, they, they may be rebelling, but there's no outward rebellion. Well, he, he will not learn righteousness. In the land of the upright will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Millennial kingdom, the majesty of the Lord will be visible on earth in Jerusalem. Conditions on earth will be perfect 
and yet man refuses God and rebels. Why? Because his heart is wicked. The problem is in him. And that's what this kingdom age is showing. It's not that Satan made me do it. Satan's not around anymore. It's not because I lived in poverty and had problems in my childhood. No, that's not going to be there anymore. It's not because I got some disease that crippled me for the rest of my life. Because that's not going to happen anymore. It's going to be an ideal environment. And yet, man still rebels against God. It's stated, it's demonstrated in Luke, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 26.10 that we just read. It's stated in Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's, that's the basic problem. And then in Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20, we have the correction. It says there, and I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Men during the millennial kingdom who are born in that kingdom, wicked and lost, can by repenting and turning to Christ be saved. And God will correct that heart problem. So here's how we, here's how we conclude. Despite ideal social, political, and economic conditions, under the direct rule of Christ on earth, Satan being removed from the earth, men yet by virtue of their sin nature reject God's love and his way. The millennial kingdom shows us that. Now, before we close, and as we think of this week being Thanksgiving week, I thought it would be very appropriate if we go back and look at a psalm of thanksgiving. Turn to Isaiah chapter 12 that will be spoken by the people of the kingdom in that day in gratefulness to God. So take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 12. And when you found it, if you'd stand up, please, we're going to read it antiphonally. And uh, we'll start with the let my left side here, which will read verse 1 with me, and then the right side, verse 2 with pastor, and we'll go back and forth as we read this psalm of thanksgiving in the millennial kingdom. Okay, with me please. And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel 
in the midst of thee. Amen. Be seated, please. We're not going to preach all of this psalm or hymn, but we're just going to take a few moments as we close today to reflect on some devotional thoughts with regard to what is being said here. The, uh, the world, often the liberal world, as they read the Bible, and they see God bringing judgment upon people who have sinned grievously against him, come to portray God as a big bully, as a guy who is just pushing everybody around and doesn't deserve the respect of anybody. Of course, that's a total misunderstanding of the Edenic covenant and the Adamic covenant. A total denial of the fact that we have a sin nature that brings God's wrath upon us, but that God in his love has provided a solution to that problem. Such that, though there may be a time of fury, a time of discipline, that the day is coming when those who follow God through Christ will be comforted. And that's the picture here. You read through your Bible here in the prophets, oh, just uh, raining all kinds of pestilence and fire and trouble coming upon the nation of Israel because they rejected God. But with the new kingdom covenant, there will come forgiveness as the blood of Christ is applied in the lives of these people of Israel, and they're converted, and large numbers of them as a nation. Mankind, rather than experiencing God's anger, will be comforted by him. You have to remember that a time of judgment is going to come to an end, and for the rest of eternity, it'll be the Lord comforting and blessing his people. Verse 2, it speaks of God. You notice it says in the first part, God is my salvation, and in the last part it says uh, he's become my salvation. And that's an indication to us that it doesn't just happen, that we have to repent when we compare Scripture with Scripture and make him our Savior by putting our faith and trust in him in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, these words here that are used are uh, very significant. God is uh, El. He's, a, he's powerful. Lord, the covenant God, the Jehovah the one who is known by name because of what he did for his people. And this great God is going to come down and sit in his temple on this earth during this kingdom period. And that which he always wanted from the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, and that is to be with his people, will finally be accomplished. And his people will live with him here on earth. Now, when you think of this, to get to confusion out some. We are going to be with the Lord, serving somewhat like angels do today during this kingdom period. And this hymn is by the people who are living on the earth, okay, in the kingdom. They're flesh and blood. They're mortals. They're subject to death. They have their sin nature. We are glorified. We are with the Lord in heaven. We don't have a sin nature. We've been glorified. It's been taken from us through the blood of Christ. We have that... Uh, future sanctification, which has occurred for us, but not for the people that are on earth. But as things progress, this thousand-year kingdom on earth eventually becomes the eternal kingdom. And, and, all, and everybody during the, the kingdom period that's wicked is cast into the lake of fire, and the righteous are translated. And so we come into this period of eternity in which we're all together with the Lord. And what we're reading here is not just true of the millennial kingdom for the people on earth, 
But after the millennial kingdom is over and the, he presents the, the mediatorial kingdom back to his father and becomes the eternal state, these are experiences that we'll all have in the eternal state. So let's look just a little bit further here. Verse 2 teaches us that living under the direct rulership of Messiah will bring a kind of trust that removes all fear. And we'll be joyful. We'll, we'll rejoice in what we have. It says that you shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. The Bible talks about wells of salvation. It talks about garments of salvation. It talks about the walls of Jerusalem being, the, being salvation. Uh, we're going to rejoice. It's going to be time of great rejoicing. We don't appreciate this as much as people in ancient times because water is quite readily available to us. I guess nowadays when people are sensitive about having good, clean water and they carry bottled water and all, that's maybe more of an issue than it's been in the past. But essentially, you can go to a spigot somewhere in your house and you got all the water you want. But it wasn't that way in Bible times. There was a, a time when you had to plan where you went and how you went so you'd be sure to have enough water to be able to make the trip. So when we talk about drawing water from the wells and having a sufficiency of it, that to a person in the Near East of that period is a tremendous blessing. Uh, it, it will be a time of great joy and fulfillment. And in that day shall ye say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. You know, today, when you go to talk to someone about the Lord, you never know quite what response you're going to get. Because we live in a world that basically is controlled by the prince of the power of the air. So there is a standoffishness, there's a resistance to the idea of speaking to somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this time, in that day, you can praise the Lord, you can call upon his name, you can declare his doings among the people, you can make sure, it's, it's what I described here, it will be a time of open, free speech, extolling Messiah. So people, rather than rejecting you or trying to keep you at arm's length because you're talking to them about the things of the Lord, will welcome it. And they'll rejoice in knowing that you uh, know the Lord and love him and what he's done in your life. It will be a time of universal knowledge concerning the Lord. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. It will be a time of universal knowledge concerning the Lord. I talked to an individual in the last couple of weeks who was a little bit older than I am, as a matter of fact, and I was trying, he was not saved, and I was trying to share the gospel with him by going through how God, how we got into this, you know, God created us, going through the covenants and the dispensations to kind of give the background for Christ's death on the cross. But I ran aground pretty quick because he had no idea what the Tower of Babel was. He had no idea about the great flood of Noah. He had never had enough Sunday school or church involvement to even know those simplest concepts. But in this time, everybody will know about the things of the Lord. Uh, the Lord will be present on the earth among his people. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. So as we close, I just want to wrap up our entire study of the dispensations by looking at a few thoughts here. Each dispensation or stewardship demonstrates in a new way man's lost condition and need of the sacrificial work of Christ. 
or I call them God's seven great pedagogical lessons of the ages. Now, if you want to follow along, you look in your outline on page two, the second page. Uh, no, I take that back. You have to get your outline for last week. I was trying to get this into four pages, and I eliminated that. But it's going to be here, so you'll see it. So just watch the screen. Okay, here's the Edenic Covenant. It taught us, and there are other things it teaches us, but it taught us that man is a sinner by his nature inherited from his ancestor, Adam. That tells how we got into the condition we're in. The Adamic covenant. Man with his sin nature left to himself will, think, will sink to the deepest depths of depravity. Why dispensation followed the Adamic covenant? Conscience. Conscience. He let man live according to his own conscience. Left to himself. He sinks to the deepest depths of depravity. The whole race went afoul, so God had to destroy it and bring judgment and start over with that, Noah and his family. Then the Noahic covenant, human government. Man can be restrained from his evil tendencies and encouraged to do good, but ultimately his sinful nature overtakes him. Good uh, government clubs will not change our hearts. They may keep things in order a little longer, but they will not ultimately change our hearts. The Abrahamic covenant, which was all promises. Man falls short of being able to live obediently before God, even in the assurance of God's promises. And so the people ended up in Egypt because they stayed there after the famine instead of returning to the land that God had promised. And then the law, having been given a divine standard for holy living, Man is totally incapable of achieving it. So Eden, how we got into trouble. Conscience, how we showed that we were hopelessly sinners. Human government, which restrained evil, but not change any hearts. The promises of Abraham, which men did not follow and, and completely obey. And then the law, which condemned us. There was, all that leads to the church period. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. That's the church age. All this was building up to the church age, which would be the death of Christ, which would give us an avenue to approach God, because there was no other way. And finally, the kingdom, despite ideal social, political, and economic conditions under the direct rule of Christ on earth, Satan being removed. Men yet, by virtue of their sin nature, reject God's love and his way. The point is this. The only way of salvation is the death, burial, and resurrection, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. You know, the Bible, we say, is Christocentric. Christo means Christ. Centric means circle. It, it, everything brings you back to Christ. And as we look at these periods of time in history, they all point to Christ. He is the answer. And if you don't have him this morning, you need to come in simple faith, confessing that you're a sinner and that you have sinned, and pleading him to apply his blood to your sin for redemption and deliverance and the eternal promises of the new covenant, which he made in his own blood.
It's an amazing thing. I, I hope if you, you may be some young people here, some of you older people have known the Lord for a long time and have a testimony for the Lord. Some of you young people do too, but there might be someone here, a young person, or, who's never made that decision and followed the Lord in baptism. And I pray that today, that this Thanksgiving would be especially a time of thanksgiving because you've done that which the Lord has called you to do. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, so much for your goodness, for your patience in developing the message of the gospel through these centuries. Help us to accept your word, obey your word, and follow you. I pray, Lord, as we sing a song of invitation that you would move in the hearts of each one of us, perhaps rejoice in the amazing beauty of your plan over the ages, or to seek forgiveness where we failed you, or perhaps even to come and find you as our Savior. Lord, work in each heart, your spirit, come among us in Jesus' name. Amen.